Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. And we are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our mission is to showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can access all the episodes. We also invite you to join our monthly podcast club. And we welcome speaking to your organization or group on Aging Reimagined. If Women Aging is a market you would like to reach, consider sponsoring an episode. Finally, if you are an author with a book about women, check out our book promotion opportunity. And today we are delighted to welcome Elaine Mays. Until she retired 11 years ago, Elaine Mays, 84, devoted her life to the education of young children serving as a teacher, principal, assistant superintendent, and university instructor. She was deeply involved in desegregation of the schools in Kansas City, Missouri. So how did a retired educator end up in the maroon village of Akampong, Jamaica? Well, hers is a tragic story with a happy ending. Within the space of one year, Elaine's two sisters died, as did her partner of 12 years, as did her dog. Her much-needed vacation trip to Jamaica was interrupted by knee surgery and hip replacement. But Elaine's persistence to get to Jamaica paid off. Upon arrival about one year ago, Elaine felt she had arrived home, and a home she did build, in two and a half months near our mutual friend Gretchen. So Elaine now basks in the beauty and calm of her environment, where she plans to live at least eight months of the year. So welcome, Elaine, to Women Over 70. We're really happy to have you with us. Well, I'm very glad to be joining you and able to share a little something. Yes, thank you. So let's, you know, up, up to retirement, to your time of retirement, you said that education had been my life. Can you give us a, a brief snapshot of uh, what you did for those 52 years and especially Certainly. your work in desegregation? Yes, certainly. Well, from a very young age, I can't imagine anything other than I wanted to be a teacher. And a teacher I did become when I was 21 years old and graduated and got that degree and got that credential and spent years in Los Angeles schools for 21 years. And then from Los Angeles schools, I went to the Midwest. And there I was principal at one school for a year and then interviewed and became assistant superintendent instructional services there. And then lo and behold, a friend of mine, Dr. George Garcia, became superintendent of the Kansas City, Missouri School District. We had done presentations up in Iowa, et cetera, and I had met him, but cursory. And he one day called and asked if I would interview for the uh, Assistant Superintendent of Instructional Services in Kansas City, Missouri, because they had become under federal order to desegregate their school. 
And I said, oh, I'm here in Leavenworth, Kansas, enjoying this assistant superintendency here in instructional services, small school district was ideal there. But the challenge was there and I accepted it. And lo and behold, did I accept a gargantuan task. <laughs> I, as assistant superintendent of instructional services, oversaw five departments, which I organized initially. It was staff development, curriculum development, special education department, special programs department, and both folk and adult ed. And each one of those had a director. They reported to me and, of course, I to the superintendent. We had a wonderful mechanism working within our instructional services division, but we had two bosses. We had the school district and we had a DSEG committee. So we had to plunge into answering questions from the DSEG committee at meeting after meeting after meeting, and then from the board, which of course, you know, that was always a monthly meeting. We sometimes would not get home till midnight for meetings. It was hard on all of us, every single one of us, but we managed to hang on. And in this DSEG order, we were able in Kansas City, Missouri, to take all the high schools, middle schools, and convert them to magnet schools. We did that, looking at not only the facilities, but also the curriculum and instruction within those facilities. We took part of the elementary schools into magnets, and the elementary schools had immersion in languages starting in kindergarten. And they also, in the high schools, I want to go back to that because they had rotted buildings and we replaced all of them. We had a planetarium. Hmm. We had schools that offered agriculture, agribusiness. This was truly on paper, on paper, the ideal situation for any school district. What but, happened in real life, Elaine? Well, what really happened was that you can throw a lot of money, and we had millions of dollars in our department and a lot of resources, but does it really help the children to achieve? And I kid you not, it does not. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that's could that be, Elaine? What, what, um, what, you know, can you explain more about that? What I, and this is my opinion, what I see is that there is something beneath, there's an underlayer there that's totally ignored that has to be settled first. And what that is, is those children coming to school that are integrating those schools if some of them haven't had a good night's sleep before or a good breakfast and they walk, march into these beautiful facilities, can they learn? Can they achieve? My answer is no. Mm -hmm. You have to get to the root of the problem. And that I haven't seen anyone so far really try to tackle.
It's sad, isn't it? It's, it's very sad because we had the teachers, we had the resources, we had everything there that was needed. Everything there that was needed, but it was a roadblock. Were there any successes that you can point to? Well, I would say that the successes that I could really point to was that the children who did, not all of them came from, you know, these very poor, uh, deprived homes, but there were children. And I would walk into a kindergarten classroom and lo and behold, I would be greeted in French by a kindergarten Mm -hmm. teacher, (laughs) student. And would take me around the room in French. Mm-hmm. Yes, there mm-hmm. were successes. There's no doubt. But the successes did not outweigh mm-hmm. the minuses yeah. that in turn would raise the standardized, heaven forbid, standardized mm-hmm. test. So the gaps that were existed were still there in spite of all these marvelous resources. And yeah. to take those children from that low quartile and to move them is almost impossible. I suggested that we take those that were just below, and perhaps many have missed school, perhaps they were underachievers, and let's work with those. But we tend to throw the money into that very low quartile, and to move it one, two, three, it takes, it takes superwoman, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Superman. And then you may not achieve it after that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So when you retired, did you, were you still working in desegregation when you decided to retire? Uh, when I decided to retire, no, I had come back to California and I um I had I had uh come back, I had retired in Kansas and came back. And when I came back to California is when I worked for 10 years at the University of California at Riverside there. And I was still teaching. Can't get away from that teaching. I was teaching <laughs> in the Graduate School of Education, oh. their interns and student teachers. Okay. We interviewed them. We observed them. We taught them, observed them on site, taught them, and then recommended them for their master's degree and their credential. So mm-hmm. it was a, it's a beautiful program. It so, was you, you, so you ended on a high note, it sounds like, in your oh, yes. whole time. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and I used to tell my staff, don't go when you're sick and angry. Mm-hmm. Go when mm-hmm. you're happy and successful. Yeah, that's good yeah. advice. Very good advice. Did uh, So what did you imagine retirement would be like? Did you have plans for retirement? For that phase, I really had no specific plans for retirement, but strange as it may seem, I really did not miss a whole lot the hustle and bustle Mm -hmm. of agendas and schedules and syllabi. And I found when I retired, there was still that hustle, I still found myself volunteering on a schedule. (laughs) <laughs> going to yoga on a special day. <laughs> we relate to that. Yeah, we, we understand <laughs> that. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, I, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, I was 
living up in Morro Bay in Central California. And that's when uh, the tragedies uh, just hit one after the other. Just seemed to be, even though I was in a beautiful place and enjoying a beautiful view and ocean and everything, that's when the sisters, 177 died. And the other one, well, in August, the other one, 91 in November. And my friend and lover for many, many years, Richard, he had a heart attack and died. Mm. And on top of all that, not enough of all my human beings so close to me were locked. My German boxer, Picasso, I had to go. I said, what's going on? What next? You know. That was in the space of one year, as I recall. Right. Oh, yes. In the space. Of, yes. In I imagine space. that left you reeling. Um, it did. It left me questioning, what have I done? Mm. You know, things have always gone well and very, very well. And I'm a very positive person. But this really shook me to the core. It did. Mm. Yeah, it really did. And it wasn't soon after that occurred that I was rear-ended, volunteering, taking a mentally challenged young man shopping, and had to have knee laparoscopic surgery, and six weeks later, replacement of a hip. So within six, eight weeks, two surgeries. So that, that, that even shook the tree to the, really, to the roots. The roots. We talk with, uh, you know, a lot, many of our guests have dealt with tragedies, although I don't recall anyone having such an enormous and um, concentrated event of loss in in one period. But talk about resilience. Um, (laughs) We're talking with you today and you're in a happy place. But how, how did you get from being, you know, shaken to the depths of your core to kind of where you are now? Well, after I moved down, uh, after the surgeries, I moved down from Morro Bay. Maybe I should should get closer to my daughter. So I moved closer to to her. And uh, in that year, a year and a half there, I said, there has to be, there has to just be something that, I must not be doing right or I should be doing. And uh, one day I was just going through an old address telephone book and I came across my friend Gretchen. I said, oh, my gosh. I said, we haven't reconnected and her phone number was there and her email address. So I called Gretchen. She was always up. Mm-hmm. And so I called her and she says, Hey, what you doing? I said, Oh, of course, the same question. <laughs> and lo and behold, she I said, she says, Where are you? I said, Pasadena. I said, Where are you? She said, Jamaica. I said, Jamaica. She said, Yes. She said, I'm here on a Fulbright, she said, and I I've been taking students, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why don't you come visit? Oh, my goodness. My heart jumped and everything. I said, I had been to Jamaica. I love the water. And I said, oh, Gretchen, I'd love to before I could even think. I'd say I'd sleep on it. 
And so I was going to visit with her. Uh, I got it a little out of the timeline. Going to visit with her when I had the two accidents. Mm -hmm. I had to put it off. Mm. That timeline was in between there and Uh and the surgeries. And I did, after I had recuperated, I did come to Jamaica. I did come up the mountains to the Maroon Village of Akampong. And I'm telling you, when I got out of the car, there was this calmness. And it was almost like home, Mm -hmm. away from home. Mm But it, it was like this heaven, heavenly breeze, to be honest with you, mm. that we have here periodically, always throughout the day. And I said, oh, Gretchen, even before I even went into her lovely place here, I said, I love it here. I love it here. And she said, just off the top of her head, well, come on here. Come on here. That's and how I Gretchen. Said, <laughs> yep, I blame Gretchen. <laughs> I said, oh, no, I don't know about that. She said, sure, you can build a house right over there, which is right next to her. <laughs> and I said, really? She said, sure. So I said, I, I would like to think about and maybe do that. So I went home after the two weeks, and I, I thought about it and prayed about it. And uh I called Gretchen and I said, you know, Gretchen, I think I would like to do that. I said, but I want to tell my daughter and granddaughter. She said, are you going to ask them? You know, this inquiring, <laughs> this inquiring mind. She's always feeding that food for thought. Um, I said, no. I said, I, I, I'm going to tell them that I've made a decision. She said, great. <laughs> so my daughter and my granddaughter, first they were a little leery and they knew that I didn't have Alzheimer's yet. <laughs> I hadn't dreamed this up, you know. And uh, my daughter said, Mom, if that's going to make you happy, you do it. And that's all I needed to hear. Mm-hmm. All I needed mm-hmm. to hear. Yeah. And so I proceeded to come back. And with the contractor, I went with him as we bought materials, and I watched it from the foundation go up. The workers were like artists. Everything was just so. And I moved in in two and a half months. If you can be remarkable, it is. (laughs) Did you stay with Gretchen while you were while it was being built? Yes. Yes, I did. I stayed with Gretchen in her lovely bed and breakfast here. (laughs) And uh, we, you know, just took our time talking and one thing and the other. And it was really no rush, rush, rush. We didn't push the workers, you know. But in two and a half months, and that's really quite (laughs) remarkable. I was an architect, and I know nothing is ever done on time that mm-hmm. day. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, uh, that's that's why I'm here now with these beautiful breezes, mm-hmm. lovely solitude, mm-hmm. kind to reminiscence. How long this is it that you're living there, Elaine? Uh, pardon? How long is it that you're living there now? 
How long have uh, you been there? I came in October, and I will be returning. It's going to be a long time this time because uh, I'm getting an extended visa, you know, with the virus and everything. My daughter said, just stay here until the fall. Mm-hmm. And so I will be coming back. My ticket is for September 2nd. So I'll be back in September. I didn't spend Thanksgiving or Christmas with them. So I will this year. So you'll be going back to California in September. And then um, when will you be I'll returning be, to Jamaica? I'll be coming back in January. I have ah, a re- okay. ticket to Oh, you do already? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Nothing, oh, nothing. yeah. I can only take, I can only take Southern California and the hustle and bustle, even mm. though I'm not working or volunteering for so long. Right. Say, so I, I think many of our listeners might not know about the Maroon Village. Can you um, tell us a little bit about that history and, and how that is distinct yes. from other parts of Jamaica? Right. The Maroons were originally slaves that came off of ships here, and they were not conquered by neither the Spanish nor the British. They remained their own city, their own government, government in quotes. They have what's called a colonel that oversees or be like similar to our president, I guess, here. We just had an election. And one of the original large maroon families whose son Richard Curry is a banker. He went on to college, has his master's degree in banking. He has won the election. And the colonel that has been here for 11 years, which really hasn't increased or improved things too much, Mm -hmm. this young man has come in with beautiful ideas. The family is known. He has been meeting, in fact, the other evening, there was a gathering with masks and six feet in between everybody. We have no virus here, by the way. That's wonderful. But going back to the Maroons, so he now is taking over as the colonel from this colonel that has been here for 11 years. Mm-hmm. So his ideas and his bringing the young, all generations in, his plan is outstanding. He's taken a lead from the bank. And so the runes up here, he wants, of course, to maintain their culture, but to give more exposure, to develop more entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be very exciting. So I'm listening and observing. And who knows what may come of this? Who knows what an old lady might be Mm -hmm. able to Really? Wow. Yeah. But the Maroons, yes, they have their own independence. They were quite the camouflaged warriors. And I understand Mm. that camouflage was first used by them. Oh. In the trees, they were camouflaged as the British came through. And they conquered Mm. the British, they stayed Mm. independent which is amazing, hmm. simply amazing. That's, thank you for that. That's, I, uh-huh. I'm so fascinated by this, by the history and how they're, you know, maintaining 
independence. Yes, um, and the culture. And the culture. And the culture, yes, yes. So what it, do you notice, uh, Elaine, about the culture as you have um, you know, ad- become ad- adapting to living in that in that culture what do you notice that has been that has been a little difficult being a quote a spoiled american you know mm-hmm. uh, and being not so spoiled but i guess in the vein a positive aspect disciplined and where time is of the essence when we say two o'clock we will usually be there even before two o'clock mm-hmm. or when we say we're going to do something. Now it's not soon be there and it might not be until 12 hours later. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I'm learning to adapt to that and finding out that it really isn't that important most of the time what I want at that particular time. Mm. It could work an hour or two later. Mm. So I, I'm having that's a, a, bit, a little difficulty with that portion of it, but I've always had to work on patience, and maybe mm. this is for me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, living in li- li- and liking the solitude. So, what is it? What is the what's the nature of this your solitude? What is that like? The nature of what? Your solitude, living in, you said you were enjoying the solitude. Yes, yes. You know, when I come into my house, it's quiet. And if I want to go out, I can go out, walk up to the road, walk down the road, and I can find company and conversation anywhere. Mm-hmm. There's always someone either walking on the street or outside of their place that you can stop and visit for a short period or a long period. Mm-hmm. But there is no interruption of what you are doing. You make yourself visible that shows that you are available. Oh, okay. And to me, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yes. And you may have a child sometime to come knock on the door, but that's a that's a good break in solitude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's not real often, but I think that that's a little blessing. <laughs> a little kid won't be bothered with an old lady. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You, you yeah. know, uh, when we talked earlier, you said that you, because of uh, COVID, and you've you know that's really people have had to stay stay in more than usual that you're thinking about you would like to contribute in some way but you haven't quite decided what that would be but what 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 are you um do you feel that you you want to be involved in the community in some way i i don't want to be involved to the extent where i'm either the leader mm-hmm. of a of a group mm-hmm. I want to be more sort of in the wings, the contributor. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of observing and looking at some of the young women here and some of them that are very, very poor. And perhaps there's something that I can do to assist 
in their educational needs, mm-hmm. both in uh, material things for them, and also in the affective domain, maybe mentoring. Mm-hmm. They're coming to my house on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon rather than my going to the school and pulling them out mm-hmm. and that kind of a thing. So I think there will be a place for me, but I think it's going to be in the back seat and in low gear. <laughs> Definitely. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't need any more big challenges. Believe yes. me. I hear you. Yeah. Yes. So, um, in the few minutes we have left, Elaine, what are there an, uh, wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners about uh, being older, about growing older, about life? You know, the big question. Yes. What I would really like to share and what I have experienced and still experiencing is that really it's never too late never too late and it's never too early never too early to change and that hard as it may be sometimes we can regroup and by regrouping perhaps we can rediscover Hmm. something something. Mm -hmm. that's really nice i'm writing that down Mm -hmm. yeah yes and i think which is really trite. Well, age is really just a number. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> we agree with you. Exactly. But it's still a number. Still yes. a number in my head. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yes. Well, Elaine, thank you so much. And when would you uh, today sometime or tomorrow go out and give w- hugs and wave kisses to my friend Gretchen? <laughs> ah, I sure will. You know, I'm, her, I'm on my way. It's only like not more than 10 steps. <laughs> and if she is home, if she is home, she's the butterfly. Yes, yeah, <laughs> sure, I can see that. I want to tell her that we did manage to get this we did together. Indeed. And we <laughs> thank you so much, Elaine, for for sharing your um, really fascinating, fulfilling life. And uh, I look forward to meeting you in person in Jamaica, by the too. way. <laughs> I do too. And come here. You might like it. I know I would. You've been here, though. I have not. <laughs> not oh, you have not? No. Oh, no. oh, you were coming. That's what it was. Right, you were right. coming, but it didn't pan out. That's what it uh, was. Yeah. For the past two years, I've been on my way. So. <laughs> two years? Oh, time's up. Time yep, is I'm, up. You tell right. her. You tell her, Elaine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so thank you again, Elaine. We're really, really pleased to, to have you part of our community now. Thank you so very much. Please, listeners. Uh, Leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Become an active participant in our community through our Facebook group. And no matter your age, participate in our monthly Zoom gatherings. You'll find everything you need to know about Women Over 70 on womenover70.com. See you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. 
If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.